Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. The series allows us to explore various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineering or data science, we'll interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into these topics. And while we're at it, we're going to enjoy our morning or afternoon brew. I'm Denny Lee. I'm a developer advocate at Databricks and one half of Databrew. And I'm Brooke Wenig, machine learning practice lead at Databricks and the other half of Databrew. For this episode, we'd like to introduce Yaron Singer, CEO of Robust Intelligence and Professor of Computer Science at Harvard University. In this session, we'll be discussing how to secure AI systems and everything that entails. But before we dive into that, I would love it if Yaron could introduce himself and how he got into the field of machine learning. Great. Well, um, hi. Hi, Denny. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me here. Um, yeah. Um, so. My uh, yeah, my adventures into machine learning started um, you know some some time ago. I um, I guess kind of like I was really interested in you know computer science and I was really interested in in algorithms and my kind of got my start in uh, more of kind of like theoretical computer science developing kind of like efficient algorithms. And um, and for me, something that has always been kind of like really really fascinating throughout this journey is kind of like you know the real world and real data. And um, and something that I've always kind of like been really invested in is kind of like understanding like how like kind of the algorithms that we develop, like you know how they actually interact with uh, kind of like the real world and real data. Um, and I think this is really kind of um, how I kind of got exposed into the kind of machine learning, uh, where you know basically. Um, when you kind of like really want to understand this, um, then, you know, kind of like you, you realize kind of like all these statistical properties of the world that come up and, uh, you know, all these things that you can like, you know, all the kind of possibilities and the things that you can do and kind of like all these sort of like fascinating questions, you know, that arise. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I got started into it. Um, I kind of, I did my PhD, uh, you know, in, uh, at Berkeley, like on this, uh, on this topic. Uh, and yeah, and then kind of like, uh, went from there. How then did you go from like machine learning into basically talking about the inherent operational risks of AI systems? And look, can you introduce that concept for that matter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so maybe I'll introduce the first and then I'll go into like uh, like how I got into it. Um, but um, but I think, yeah, the, the concept of, you know, kind of securing, um, you know, machine learning um, is, is basically what that means is it means like the inherent problem that we have is that machine learning is extremely sensitive to like kind of very, very small changes um, in the underlying data. And these small changes could be due to, you know, various reasons. It could be, be you know, due to the fact that like, you know, our data is, um, you know, is different from data that we've seen in the past or like kind of our training data has not been kind of properly collected. Uh, maybe there's like human error, um, you know, and maybe there is an adversarial player, you know, like kind of like that's injecting kind of bad data into it. But all these kind of like all these reasons, like basically create like these very, very small changes in the data that can really, really fool like kind of our, you know, our state of the art AI models. And, um, and that's kind of when we're talking about securing AI or secure machine learning, um, this is what we mean. We mean kind of um, the ability to kind of um, make sure that the data that's coming into the models, you know, is not gonna have an adverse effect on them. Um, how I got into it is basically, um, I think it's been, um, uh, it's been kind of like a while ago when um, I was, um, I kind of, I, back in the day, I, um, I kind of had my own little startup adventure and then later on, I went to I went to work for um, you know for, for Google, and you know so I, I, I saw kind of like a lot of um, kind of like this interaction between you know uh, between machine learning and and algorithms, and specifically kind of what you see when you're when you're working on these systems, if you're thinking about um, kind of like 
any machine learning system that you're actually working on, what do you quickly notice is you notice like how these sort of like very, very small changes in the data um, can really affect like, you know, uh, your, your decisions. So what I found out when, you know, when I was working on um, at these places, I found out that like we were spending all this energy on like developing these like really, really like smart algorithms. You can think about algorithms for things like kind of marketing and social networks. You can think about marketing like algorithms for problems like AdWords. But all these algorithms, what they depend on, they take as input, they take um, machine learning predictions. And when you see like how sensitive these machine learning predictions are and how they change like all your hard work, like in kind of like an optimization and how they kind of like kind of completely change your decisions, you realize that, you know, the, the problem that you really should focus, be focusing on is, um, you know, kind of like understanding kind of the sensitivity, right, of machine learning models to these kind of small changes in preservations. So basically my, um, yeah, my entire kind of career at Harvard has been on this. So um, I've been kind of like working on this uh, at Harvard uh, for probably like seven or eight years um, on exactly kind of understanding how to develop noise robust machine learning algorithms. So there we go. Yeah, I know that's a very important or very big problem. I mean, you read all these papers like one pixel attacks, being able to change one pixel can completely change the output of the classifier. Can you talk a little bit more about your work and how you're actually attacking this problem? Yeah, I mean, um, so yes, absolutely. Um, so um, I think kind of, you know, at, at, at Robust Intelligence, we sort of like, there, there are two sides of this, right? The, the, the first side is um, is attacking machine learning models, right? And by attacking, like this could be by like one pixel changes, but it could also be by kind of like sending like an image with the wrong dimensions to like a model or like sending like a data point that has like a missing feature, right? So we have like a very kind of deep understanding about like what fools machine learning models and, and, and why, right? And, um, and then the other side of it, obviously what we do is um, we're building an AI firewall and what that AI firewall does is exactly it handles that. So, um, you know, basically it's it's kind of like you think about this as like kind of as a wrapper around your, your existing model, right? And what that does is it basically, um, it, it has the ability to sort of, um, you know, like give you like a confidence score about like the data point coming in, the likelihood of that data point fooling your model or kind of creating something that, um, or yeah, basically just like kind of fooling your model. Gotcha. So one of the things that's related to this that I w want to think a little bit about is most data validation checks, <laughs> if any, right, is sort of in the pre-processing logic. Like, for example, is it like the correct data type? What issues do you basically see with this, this type of approach? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So, um, I mean, there there is... Um... All right, so, so first of all, kind of like, so what do we mean like uh, when we talk about pre-processing, right? So... Um, so first of all, like if, if we think about, um, you know, let's take, you know, like, let's take neural networks as an example, right? Um, normally kind of the way that like, um, uh, the way that the data goes into, you know, in, into like kind of what we think about as the neural network or the machine learning model goes through a pre-processing phase, right? And that pre-processing phase, right? What it like largely what it does is it takes, you know, kind of like a, you know, raw data point and then transforms it into you know, into kind of like normally it's kind of numerical features, right? That can be um, that can be used by the by the neural network or you know our modern machine learning model. Um, that pre-processing box, what it does is it you know does it, it does a sort of this translation, right? And in addition to this translation, it does some sort of like kind of like very basic input validation, right? 
Um, and that's something that is obviously like very, very good, right? Like, so it can do like kind of very, it can do things that are important. Like, you know, if you have like, if you're passing on a value that is, you know, um, that is maybe like a very large integer, right? That can create like kind of integer overflow or something like that, right? Then it can kind of handle that. Or maybe if you're passing like an integer inside a string, right? It can basically kind of translate that string into an integer without, without a problem, right? So it can basically kind of do those things, right? But the things that it cannot do is basically, it doesn't have an understanding of the model and it doesn't have an understanding of the data, right? So for example, like, um, it, you know, pre-processing doesn't know, like for example, um, if there is a categorical, right? That the model hasn't, hasn't seen, right? Um, it doesn't know if there's like a, you know, now if you sort of like, if one of your features is like age and you feed in like age a million, right? Well, that doesn't make sense, right? But in order to understand that, that doesn't make sense, right? Like you need to see that, you know, that the, the, the data just, you know, you need to understand like the distribution, you know, that the data is coming from and understand that like, well, a million doesn't really make sense, right? And there are kind of like a gazillion more kind of like very nuanced things, right? That pre-processing just, you know, doesn't, doesn't do, right? And, um, and not only it doesn't do it right now, but like in order to do that, well, what you actually need to do is you actually need to like kind of build a system that like kind of is trained on the model and, and the data and, you know, and kind of like puts those together and, and then kind of like has, you know, context about like kind of what is like the right data points and what are data points that fool the model and what are data points that, you know, that are maybe they're incorrect, but they're not gonna affect the model, right? You also wanna know about that. You don't wanna have like these sort of like false positives. So, that's a, and that's already a fireball. So this actually transitions really nicely into the concept of testing machine learning applications, because generally software engineering, people talk about like test-driven development or test-first development. With data science, I'm happy if somebody even writes a test. Um, what are your thoughts about writing tests for machine learning applications? Yeah, um, many. Um, I, I think that this is, um, so I, I think that this is this is somewhere where um, like and I think now now us as as a, as a field right machine learning as a field I think this is where we have like kind of a long way to go right um, you know like I think that like uh, there there's a, by the way there, there's a there's a beautiful talk uh, that was at um, at Neurips I think it was like by by Ali Rahmi when um, so um, you know when they uh, for it was it was sort of like for for the test of time award. And uh, and um, and Ali basically gave uh, gave this 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 really great talk about like kind of machine learning as an engineering discipline and kind of like and and all the ways that we still have to go in in order to kind of like you know um, have machine learning you know be an engineering discipline that we trust as you know as as in, in the same way that we trust kind of like you know other disciplines like maybe like civil engineering or you know um, other other kind of like engineering disciplines where kind of like um, where we um, you know, where we understand that things are at stake, right? Um, so um, along those lines, then, you know, one of the things that, you know, that can help us with like developing rigorous, you know, machine learning, you know, systems is by testing, right? Like testing our, you know, testing our, our machine learning models, right? Testing our data, things like that, right? Um, right now, like it's done very, like in a very like ad hoc way, right? And when I when I personally trying to think about you know and I think about this a lot like you know why right I, I talk to like you know uh, in, in in my business I talk to a lot of data scientists from like a lot of different companies um, you know from kind of all all ends of the spectrum and um, and I really try to understand kind of like the I really try to understand the culture like I really try to understand kind of like the practices right and and understand like well how can we like you know how can we make the you know the organization 
um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, not only like have better AUC results, right, but how can we make this like kind of a, a more rigorous, better disciplined uh, organization? Um, I think that the reasons have to do with culture and maturity, right? I think the, you know, the cultural aspect of it is like, you know, in, if, we're, if we're comparing to like software engineering, right, um, then I think kind of the culture of, of machine learning is, is a little bit kind of like researchy, right? Uh, we really enjoy kind of like, you know, kind of taking these statistical models, playing around with them, seeing some results, right? Um, so I think that's sort of, uh, that's been a driver of, of machine learning. And there's also kind of like a great deal of innovation and it's sort of like constantly in flux and changing, right? So I think kind of inherently in the culture, you know, it, it just sort of, um, it feels less rigorous, right? Um, so I think that's kind of one part of it. Um, the other part of it is maturity, right? Um, if we think about machine learning as an engineering discipline, you know, that's relatively like a new thing. You know, um, when I was in grad school, like, you know, the, the number of companies that had kind of machine learning and, you know, kind of as part of their core business, you know, was not, not a great deal, right? You'd use this for like things like fraud detection and spam detection, you know, at like these very, very, very big companies. But it's not that like, you know, pretty much like every software company that you talk to like had a, you know, had a data science team. Right. But now, you know, you know, kind of like you know, 10 years later, right, all of a sudden the world is really changing. Right. So I think what we also have to like understand is that we have to understand that like as, as an engineering discipline, machine learning is is a pretty young discipline. So I think kind of those two things together make it that like there isn't, you know, we don't follow the rigorous processes or in most cases, you know, kind of like most most companies, most organizations right now, they still are not following the rigorous processes that we'd expect. In software development, right? But but I think those things well those things are changing, right? Um, I think kind of um, you know like as as people are developing kind of you know um, people are developing AI models and they're making kind of decisions based on these AI models, right? Um, and and they kind of like and they understand kind of the consequences and the risk involved, right? Then uh, then I think kind of those those practices are you know are changing. Yeah, and that's also a really interesting discussion just about the split between machine learning and engineering, because actually most of the people that get into data science and machine learning don't come from a pure engineering background. And like even computer science at many schools isn't considered engineering. And so data scientists are entering it from math, from physics, from computer science, and then many other fields as well, social sciences. And so in those fields, the concept of test-driven development isn't often taught in courses. But do you think it's possible to do test-driven development for data science? Or do you think that models evolve and change so much that it's too difficult to write the tests up front? Oh, yes, I absolutely think that like test driven, uh, I think the test driven approach in data science is, is, is like, yes, absolutely I do, right? In the same way that we're um, basically in the same, it's harder, right? Like, let's sort of recognize the fact that like this is harder and, um, but, but it's but, but definitely doable. Now, why is it harder? It's harder because like, um, you know, when, when we're writing software, right, uh, normally in, in most cases, like it's more deterministic, right? You know, we have like, you know, we know how to kind of like, you know, we, we know how to write, um, uh, we know how to break it up. We know how to kind of like, you know, it's interpretable. We can look at the code, we understand it, right? We understand what like kind of every component needs to do, right? And it's easier and then we can kind of like take it in small by, you know, by chunks. And then we know how to, it's easier for us to kind of like test software and create like kind of these unit tests, right? When we're dealing with AI models, in many cases, like 
they're models that we're using off the shelf because it's like, you know, it's difficult to train them. Maybe you don't have the data, maybe you don't have the resources and, you know, and whatnot. But um, so now we, we're kind of like interacting with this black box, right? And this black box is, you know, it could be like non-deterministic. It's a statistical kind of like entity, right? And kind of like, and, and it, you know, there are, you know, the universe of kind of possible unit tests, it, you know, it seems infinite, right? Um, and, um, and that's, you know, and, and, and that's like really hard. Like, you know, what do I, you know, I, I don't understand this, this, this box that, that I now need to, you know, to test and what am I testing for? Like kind of what are like kind of all the, all the things that can happen and, and just like writing and, and, and we're, you know, and, and actually kind of writing tests actually requires you to like, you know, like actually now develop algorithms, you know, that will fool this, this sort of like, you know, this sort of like kind of black box entity. Um, so it's definitely harder, but is it doable? Yes, it's doable, right? It's doable, right? Like if you, you know, you, you spend the time, the effort, um, you know, to, to like, uh, you know, to do it, um, then, uh, then you can, then you can do it uh, and you can kind of like um, test your model and you can kind of like um, basically expose all its quirks, all its vulnerabilities, things like that. Um, at, you know, like, and at robust intelligence, we, we, you know, like we, we think that this is like kind of a big ask for like data science uh, teams that, you know, this is like, we know how long it takes to like develop these tests, right. In a, you know, in, in a thoughtful, rigorous way. So, um, will we, will we anticipate, you know, organizations to do, we anticipate them to use products to do that rather than having their kind of sending their data science teams to kind of like, you know, for six months or whatnot to kind of like develop uh, these unit tests. No, that that makes a ton of sense. In fact, actually, you're reminding me now. I'm pulling a little bit of my own past here, like when we tried to even just do like validation tests on BI systems, right? Like just like at the time that we started, it was like, oh, but all the Cartesian of all possible queries, and then of course over time you develop that rigor of like, oh yeah, well we're actually doing validation tests, so you don't actually have to get every single value. You just need to have tests that are representative of that. And exactly to your point, you know. As the system, as we mature, we'll start realizing, okay, maybe you don't need to have every, per, every permutation right, uh, out there. But that does relate to actually sort of my next question, which is sort of like, well, then, especially because, you know, you're sort of doing this a little bit at robust intelligence, and, and we'll actually want to talk, actually, have you describe a little bit more about your company uh, shortly. But what are some of those biggest challenges that you see people face when they're trying to get these models production ready? I mean, obviously, it starts with, we've sort of alluded to that from the testing perspective. But I'm just curious, are there other aspects that you, you feel that should be called out right from the get-go? Well, when you're looking at this more globally, right? Um, you know, a lot of times we're kind of like interacting with like the, you know, the, the VP of the organization, the, the VP of the data science, or, you know, like someone who's like, you know, the, at the, at the director level or, you know, and uh, one of the biggest challenges that they have is with kind of like having an understanding of, you know, kind of like, you know, unit, like what their models are doing, right? They kind of want to have some sort of like oversight of like, okay, you know, like they want to have like some some kind of like a sense of like an inventory of the models, right? And then kind of when they have like a sense of the inventory of the models, they want to understand like kind of like, you know, what are the different things that they, they you know that um that the you know that the that the team has like you know tried tested and why they're using what they're using, and they want to kind of like have an understanding. Um, they want basically kind of some sort of visibility, you know, kind of like some kind of like you know um, observation on you know on the um, I think kind of on the. Uh, uh, on, the, on the quality, right, of, of, of the models as a, as a whole. And I think that's that's kind of like one, one of the, a, a big challenge. Um, and then the other thing is kind of very much related to that is like um, 
kind of standardization of you know of, of kind of practices and quality right um so you know you don't want like um you don't want like kind of one uh kind of like one team kind of like you know kind of like developing kind of th these types of you know like kind of these types of tests and kind of like you know looking out for these cases and another team like looking out for something else so you want some sort of like kind of standardization and i think kind of like the other aspect of it like that's related is um is kind of like related you know it, it is um is about like understanding what the what the assumption what assumptions the model is making okay and actually this is a super important thing and um and, and and this is like especially in larger organizations, right? So what do you see in, in a lot of kind of like you know like these these large organizations is like somebody develops a model, there are all these sort of assumptions baked into it, you know like for example like oh I'm assuming that pre-processing does this and I'm assuming that the data is never capitalized and I'm assuming that this and this and this and this and this, and this right? There's no document you know that ever gets written about this and, and even if there were right nobody would read it right and now that person you know hands off the model to someone else. Right, uh, you know, to kind of like get used in the, you know, that, that gets used in production. Nobody knows what, you know, what are the assumptions that this model is making, right? Um, and now, kind of like, you know, all these things are fed into it. It breaks, right? And then you have to call into that person to sort of like come in, fix, right? Do all this kind of firefighting. So this sort of like understanding the assumptions that the model is making, especially as these models like they move around the organization from one team to another, right? Um, that is actually something that's really, really critical, um, and we're seeing kind of like a lot of um, kind of yeah, and that's sort of like a a point where where a lot of things break. So yeah. So in terms of communicating these pre-processing steps, I see this happen quite a lot with our customers. They'll have a data engineering team, they'll ingest the data, and they'll do some very basic pre-processing. They think they're helping the data scientists out by either dropping the missing values or just blindly imputing it with the mean. How do you suggest best communicating these pre-processing steps? Like you'd said, it's very difficult to communicate, especially if the responsibility transfers across teams or the code evolves through many people working on it. How do you internally keep track of it or how do you see your customers keeping track of what pre-processing steps are actually required by the model? Yeah, I mean, I think that's this is um, exactly like testing. Like, like this is, we, we can't kind of like stress this more, right? Like, um, you know, uh, run models through tests. You know, you, you, you test, you, you kind of you test the models and then like according to these tests, these tests expose exactly automatically, they expose what the model like is assuming, right? Like is the model assuming that like, you know, um, is the model assuming that, uh, that now this input is, is a numerical feature? Is this model assuming that like this is a unique ID? You know, like all these things that they, they have to be, you know, they have to become like exposed in, in some sort of like automated way. So like we're like whatever it is, like we're, we're sort of like um, what we're recommending is you know, either buy or build some sort of like, um, uh, yeah, just, just some sort of like kind of validation method, right? Uh, that, 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 that tests the model and then can, and exposes exactly what the model is, you know, is assuming. And, and before you're, you're, you're going to put your model into production, you know, you, you walk through those, you walk through those assumptions and you see, and you see whether, you know, that, that suits kind of the, um, the assumption, you know, you look through these assumptions and then you sort of see whether, the, that that suits the um, the input that the model is now gonna you know is now gonna take, so that, that this is this is what we're uh, this is what we're recommending. Got it. And I know that the vast majority of uh, data science models never end up making it to production. I think the number is around 90 ish percent. What are some of the main reasons why you see many models not actually make it into production? 
I, yeah, I think that's a good question. I think I think like what we also need to like ask ourselves is like what do we what what do we mean when we say production, right? So I think kind of like um, so many of our of our you know like so many customers that we talk to like they're like oh well my my model never you know is, is not you know doesn't doesn't go into production so you know um, so something 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 right and now like so what you know like I think that kind of um, I think that the, that our idea of uh, production is, is normally like we're, we're thinking about like kind of a model that's sort of like sitting in some sort of like very dark room on a server and it's sort of like kind of like taking in data and making decisions kind of like autonomously right and um, just kind of like running like that right um, well you know um, in, in a lot of cases what, what you kind of you find companies that are like you know they don't have a model in production but what they do is they on a, on a weekly basis they run like a, they run they run a model right on a new data set right and they send that to their customers right and in some cases they have this as an automated process and um, you know and uh, in some cases they they retrain the model right and they don't think about it as production because they think oh well there's a human you know there, there's always like maybe like a human there and you know and then maybe like in some cases there's somebody who's like some cases like maybe someone who's also validating the results right um, but um, but I think that is like um, I think that that is that is still kind of like these are still cases that are interesting, right? And still cases where uh, where kind of like you know the results of the models are being consumed, right, uh, by by people who are making decisions. Um, I think if we're thinking like why why don't we see more models like kind of get into production and in the way that we think about them, I think it's just a matter of time. I think that like you know again we have to remember like just just how new the discipline is. Right. So if we think about this, like, you know, like five years from now, like, are we going to see more automated decisions getting made by models without human intervention? Absolutely. We are. And by the way, and Databricks is like really pushing the envelope on this. Right. Like we see like kind of with like with Databricks notebooks and like how the way they like kind of make it so like so easy for people to automatically retrain their models. Right. Then, you know, like two years from now, five years from now, like, you know, if, if, if now like the numbers are you know, within the less than 10 percent of models getting into production, then I think that we're going to see. 50% of the models are going to be in production and then the way that we're thinking about production these days. So that's one thing that I am thought was really interesting. So as you, you're noting the fact that you were segueing to like automation and then there's just like you said, there's like 50% of the models are going to go into production. So as more and more are going in. But then the one thing that I'm just curious about is that it, does that because of that automation and you sort of alluded to this before, it, does this imply that we actually now also need to really look out for the biases that we place in our AI models? Because like whether it's the pre-processing steps, the fact that we're automating these things. And so inherently it's a human that's writing it down. So their, their inherent biases, uh, biases may in fact end up being automated. I'm just curious from your perspective. Oh yeah. I think that's a great question. I think that's like, absolutely we do. Right. Like, um, I think it's like, um, one thing that we have to realize is like the fact that like kind of like AI is eating the world and the fact that like, you know, we're going towards a, uh, a world where like, um, you know, AI is responsible for like decisions being made automatically without human intervention. That's a fact. Right. And as, as um, and I think kind of like um, and, and, and we also have to understand kind of like, you know, I don't want to geek out too much and, you know, <laughs> but um, but like, you know, if you give me like, you know, 10 seconds of, you know, you allow me if we think about like, you know, when you stare into when you stare into the eyes of you know of of 
of machine learning, when you understand kind of like why it works, when you understand kind of like, by the way, the brilliance of this, the brilliance of kind of like this, this sort of like path learnability and all this, um, you know, it's something that's supposed to work well on average, right? By definition, right? And it can work really well on average, right? And it can have, we can have like really great confidence intervals and it can do all those great things when we have a lot of data and all this, right? But by definition, like, you know, these things are not supposed to handle kind of the, the outliers and the worst case instances, right? And um, when that, whenever we're thinking about, um, whenever we're thinking about uh, kind of like bad decisions that we don't want to be made, be made by kind of like these AI models, right? You know, we're, you know, it is the corner cases. It is the, you know, whether it's a corner case because of like malice, right? That somebody's like taking advantage of, like we, we saw kind of like the, the, the sort of like the, the Microsoft chatbot a few years ago, if you guys remember, when people were like, kind of like poison it to like kind of make it say like kind of like racist slurs and all that. You know, I, I think that was like a good exercise, right? For for humanity, right? To kind of like understand kind of like how, how these things can go wrong, like in you know a matter of like just hours, right? Um, and uh, and of course we've seen kind of like other examples with, uh, you know, kind of like with Google and, and, and kind of like, and, and kind of like, uh, and, uh, and, and the kind of like image, image recognition kind of mishaps, things like that, right? So I think um, I think like I think you know the, the the sort of like kind of the the almost like the bias is almost inherent in you know in in this in this approach right so I think what what it, what it means is it calls for us to uh, basically you know to protect against these corner cases right and make you know and kind of like and then make sure that like these corner cases are handled right before they go into these you know statistical models that are, you know, that do well on average, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a really excellent point about machine learning systems, even when you evaluate them, you evaluate them in aggregate. You don't generally look at the individual error analysis of which records you misclassified. Exactly, exactly. And and by the way, like, and and, and, and we see what happens, like, you know, and right, like, exactly, that, that's exactly right. We don't look at, like, we don't evaluate a machine learning model based on, kind of like, on its worst prediction, right? And, you know, because, you know, if, if, if we do that, then we're like, these models are going to be, you know, if, if we do that and we train kind of like machine learning models to kind of like do well on kind of like on their worst behavior, then, then we're not going to go anywhere. And I think kind of like, um, I think there's, there's sort of like kind of like, um, just anecdotally, there's kind of like this example from like, you know, from the world of like adversarial noise and, and, and all the work that, that has gone there, which has like been really, really fantastic. But, um, but the approach there has been like, okay, let's, I think it was, it was almost kind of like this this thought experiment that went on for like a few years about like let's do kind of like adversarial training meaning like we will um we will kind of like take our existing kind of machine learning methods for training models and what we'll do is we'll just feed in like kind of like all this sort of like you know adversarial data into them right and then see kind of like and then see the performance of the model and i think kind of the best that we know how to do right now with like kind of these image recognition models is like i think we have like accuracy on the order of like 37 percent Right. And this is in comparison to like what, like 90, 98%, 99%, like kind of without this. So I think what, what that tells us, like, and it's hard to imagine that someone is going to like, you know, happily adopt a model that does like instead of 99%, like does like 37%, right? You know, and because it can handle like kind of, you know, you know, these, these kind of crazy corner cases, right? So, so what, so, so I think that's kind of like, that's really, you know, um, from everything that we've seen, that's really inherent in, in, into kind of like the, into this kind of like in, into machine learning, right? Into, into the method that, that works. And, and, we, and we have to, 
you know, and again, if we're going back to like as an engineering discipline, right? We can't, you know, like um, we can't not fix this, right? So it's on us. Yeah, and I guess the inherent problem as well with corner cases is if you build a model that can handle all the corner cases, you're likely overfitting to the corner cases you've already seen. Um, so it's a problem that's just really difficult to solve. I'm curious to see what comes out in the future. Um, but kind of as a wrap up here, uh, two questions for you. One, what advice or best practices do you want to leave our listeners with today? And two, uh, could you do a quick pitch of robust intelligence for everyone? Absolutely. I was hoping you were going to ask for my t-shirt size, but, um, okay. <laughs> I think, um, okay. But, um, but okay. That, that's a wish, but, um, I think kind of, okay. So for, for the, for the first question, um, yeah, my pitch to companies is, um, in general, like, uh, be, I think kind of be rigorous in your practices, um, you know, insist on, insist on unit testing, insist on, on standardization, insist on, uh, visibility, um, try to like count the number of times that you're like fighting, firefighting and kind of like, and jumping into, you know, and jumping into the models and realize that that's not a good thing. Right. Like, you know, um, try to have like your, you know, your, 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 think about like kind of your KPRs, like include not only like accuracy of the models, but like include the kind of like, um, the kind of like the, the rigorousness of this, right. And, uh, and be well aware of kind of, of, of all the consequences, right. To the business, right. Not, not to say humanity, but like, you know, to your business, like when, when you're thinking about, um, when, when these models fail, right. So. This is um, this this is the advice that I have for organizations, and oh, and of course, like use robust intelligence. But uh, okay, um, but yeah, but then on okay, so so what is robust intelligence? Yeah, so um, so what we're doing what we're doing in robust intelligence is we're building an AI firewall, and what this AI firewall does, it basically um, again you can think about this as a wrapper around your model, like where like you have like a data point coming in, and then you know, and then this AI firewall. Um, gives you like a quality score of, of the data, right? And indicating like the likelihood of this data point like fooling your model. Um, the way that we do this is we do this kind of in stages. The first thing that we do is like we, we, we train this um, using uh, stress testing, right? So we, we stress test the model, we identify kind of all the vulnerabilities, all the issues that it has, right? Um, and kind of with, with, uh, with, with uh, like the data that it's supposed to take in. Right, and then based off of that, like we're uh, we're training these uh, we're training these uh, these firewalls. Um, so yeah, like uh, for anyone anyone out there that is interested in um, in improving kind of the rigor of your system, your you know like robust intelligence is waiting for you. Sounds very robust. <laughs> I just had to do that. <laughs> yes, yes. No, we we get that all the time. It's good. It's good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Data Brew Your Own. We definitely enjoyed our conversation, learned a lot, and it's good to know that test-driven development is possible with machine learning as well. Amazing. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks.